You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're taking a bit of a bigger chunk today. We're looking at verses 35 through 49. First Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 49. Verse 35, Paul writes, But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. A common tactic that unbelievers will use in order to excuse their rejection of Jesus Christ is that they will claim that the Christian faith does not make sense, that there are too many questions left unanswered, and that believing in Jesus would require them to check their brains at the door. Such an unbeliever will pose a question to discount the legitimacy of Christ and what he claimed about himself, And if a believer soundly and logically and clearly answers that question for him, that skeptic, that unbeliever, will refuse to acknowledge that it's a good answer and will instead pose another question and say, well, what about this? And the unbeliever will pile up question after question in order to try and insulate himself from the truth and in order to try and give himself the illusion that he's just being sensible in holding back from following Christ, when in reality he has no desire for the truth and he secretly hopes he never receives answers to his questions. He's a proud skeptic who is comfortable in his sin and the thought that there's a creator that he must give an account to someday scares him. And so he pulls up the cover of his questions and hides his head underneath like a child who thinks there's a monster in his bedroom and thinks that just burying his head under the covers will protect him. In this passage that we're looking at this morning, Paul yanks the covers off of the proud skeptic who rejects the resurrection of the dead 
and he does that by facing the questions of the skeptic and answering them, showing that they're not a legitimate reason to reject the truth of the resurrection of the dead. In verse 35, we're going to see these questions, and together these questions form an objection, the objection of the skeptic. And then in verses 36 to 41, we're going to see illustrations. Paul will give us two illustrations by which he will answer this skeptic. And then in verses 42 to 49, Paul will finish his answer by applying those illustrations to the questions the skeptic has asked. So first, the objection in verse 35. In this verse, Paul has someone asking a couple of questions. And by the way Paul answers these questions, it's clear that the the one in Paul's mind who is asking this is not a sincere, humble questioner, but rather a proud skeptic. And these may be the very questions that the resurrection deniers that we saw in verse 12 were asking. And because they don't think there's a suitable answer to these questions that they're asking, they've resorted to denying the resurrection altogether. Take a look at verse 35. It says, But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Paul has spent this chapter outlining the logic behind the resurrection, how the scripture teaches it, how it's a valid expectation for the believer, and what the consequences would be if you denied the resurrection. And Paul, the way he approaches the skeptic, it's as if the skeptic has heard all of that and yet says, well, I've got these two questions and I can't accept the resurrection because it just doesn't make sense to me. And these are their questions. The first question they say is, how are the dead raised? In other words, how is that even possible? How is that even possible? The second question is, with what kind of body do they come? You can imagine them saying, will it be like a zombie crawling out of the ground, covered in maggots and decomposing flesh? What if the person's been dead for a thousand years and there's nothing left in the grave? All the bones have dissolved and all the flesh is decomposed completely. How do you bring such a person's body back when there's nothing to bring back? And even if you do bring them back from the dead, resuscitated and reassembled somehow, what's to stop them from just dying again? After all, the body that went into the grave died. If you just raise them up, what's to stop them from dying all over again? To the skeptic, the idea of a resurrection is absurd. It's something only an idiot would believe someone who hasn't thought things through like the skeptic has. That must have been how the Athenians viewed Paul when he proclaimed Christ to them in Acts chapter 17. In that passage, Paul is proclaiming to them the good news of Jesus Christ, and they listen to him up until the point he talks about the resurrection. And when he mentions the resurrection of Christ, verse 32 says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. They mocked Paul for his belief in a resurrection. So that's the objection that has been posed by this skeptic that Paul is answering, and it's come in the form of two questions. That brings us to the illustration, which we find in verses 36 to 41. And it's really two illustrations. 
But before we get to that, how does Paul answer the objector? How does he first respond to the skeptic who's asking these questions? Verse 36, he says, you fool, you fool. The word for fool that Paul uses, according to one lexicon, means this, quote, not making use of common sense or ordinary intelligence, characteristic of one who fails to take account of various aspects before drawing a conclusion or adopting a course of action, unquote. Someone not making use of common sense or ordinary intelligence. That's ironic because it's the skeptic who's accusing Paul of that, of not using common sense. But Paul turns the tables and says, you're the one who's not using common sense. You fool. By calling him a fool, Paul is implying that there is something, or rather someone, that this person is not taking into account in his reasoning. Who might this skeptic not be taking into account? Any ideas? Okay, Jesus or God? What does David write in Psalm 14, verse 1, about the fool? The fool has said in his heart, what? There is no God. When we fail to take God into account in how we think about things, we become fools. That was true of the resurrection deniers in Corinth, and it was true of the Athenians who mocked Paul for his belief in the resurrection. So it's not the one who believes in the resurrection of the dead who is foolish. It's the one who denies the resurrection because he leaves God out of the equation. That is the fool. That is the fool. We come to the actual illustrations next. And the first illustration is the transformation of seeds. The transformation of seeds. In verses 36 through 38, Paul begins to answer the skeptic by giving the first of two illustrations. Verse 36 says, You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Paul here picks an illustration that everyone is quite familiar with, and it's that of planting seeds. In order to get corn or wheat, you have to plant or sow a corn seed or a wheat seed in the ground. Back then, there was apparently not a widespread understanding of the scientific process of germination by which a seed would turn into a plant. But notice, that lack of understanding did not prevent the farmer from going ahead and burying a seed in the ground in the hopes that he would get a plant to spring up in the place of it. Turn with me to Mark chapter 4, because Jesus draws on that reality in one of his parables, the reality that at that time, the way a seed germinated wasn't known in a widespread way. Mark chapter 4, verse 26 And he, Jesus, was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows, how he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, 
First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. So it was a mystery as to how burying a seed, which Paul describes as the seed dying, it was a mystery as to how that resulted in a grown plant. But again, the point that Paul is making here is that just because there was a lack of understanding of how such a thing happened didn't mean that such a thing was impossible. The skeptic that Paul is answering apparently is rejecting the resurrection of the dead simply because he cannot understand it. Remember the first question, how are the dead raised? As if there's no legitimate answer. But just because you cannot understand something doesn't mean you should not believe it. What if farmers in the ancient world, because they could not understand how a seed that you put in the ground becomes a plant, what if they, on the basis of their lack of understanding, just decided to stop farming because they didn't understand how it happened? There'd be a whole lot of hungry people, wouldn't there? It's foolish to reject something just because you don't understand it. Just because you don't understand how the resurrection can take place is not at all a good reason for rejecting it as true. Paul continues with this seed illustration in verse 37. He says, And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. What Paul says here provides another insight into the false assumptions of the questioner. You have to ask, why does Paul make the point here that the farmer, when he puts a wheat seed in the ground, does not expect that seed to pop back out of the ground looking the same as when he put it into the ground? What does the farmer expect? He expects something to come up out of the ground that looks totally different from what he put into the ground. Why does Paul make that point? Well, apparently, one of the assumptions of the skeptic that led him to reject the resurrection was the assumption that the body of a person that was buried would be the exact same kind of body that would be raised. The skeptic thought that the resurrection involved just getting the exact same body out of the ground that you'd put into the ground. And to the skeptic, that seemed pointless and absurd. That body died. What's the point of raising that body if it's just going to die all over again? The skeptic didn't understand that at the resurrection, there's a radical transformation that takes place. The body that comes out of the ground is of a whole different sort than the body that went into the ground. Just as the seed is radically transformed into a plant, so the body of the believer will be radically transformed at the resurrection. Verse 38, Paul says, But God gives it, the seed, a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. Paul says, but God. That is what the skeptic was not taking into account. That's what, the, what made the skeptic a fool. He wasn't taking God into account. Just as God is the one who ultimately, by his creative power, causes the buried seed to undergo a transformation into a predetermined form of plant, so God, by that same creative power, will cause the dead body of the believer 
to undergo a transformation into a different kind of body. Now, obviously, Paul here, he's not claiming that the process by which a seed turns into a plant is the same process by which a dead body transforms into a resurrection body. He's not arguing for some kind of germination process that takes place in your dead body when you're buried. That's not what he's saying. He's simply showing that as God is able to oversee and cause the transformation of a seed, so God is able to oversee and cause the transformation of a person's dead body. And Paul here, he's drawing on Genesis chapter 1 in this talk of seed and plants. It's helpful if we remind ourselves of what that passage says, Genesis 1, verses 11 to 13. The Genesis narrative is the foundation of Paul's thinking in this passage of 1 Corinthians. But Genesis 1, 11 through 13 says this, Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. It is God who brings about the plant and who brings about the seed who causes the seed to sprout and become a plant? Cannot the Creator, who created different kinds of plants and designed for those different kinds of plants to produce seed, which then would in turn bring about the same kind of plants, cannot that Creator do the same creative work in the bodies of believers? What do you think? Can He do that or not? He's the Creator. Of course He can. Nothing is too difficult for him. So, through this illustration, Paul is showing that the skeptic, by those questions that he asked, has not placed some kind of hurdle in front of Paul that's hard to jump over. The resurrection is possible and certain because God is God. He can do whatever he wants. And if he says he's going to raise a dead body out of the ground, he can do it because he's the creator. God will bring about a radical transformation in the resurrection. That brings us to the second illustration, which we see in verses 39 to 41, which Paul uses to continue answering the skeptic. Verses 39 to 41, Paul says, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. Paul here again, he's pointing to the creative power and genius of God. Paul points out, when he's saying there's differences in God's creation. He's pointing out that God has uniquely designed every part of his creation to inhabit and thrive 
in the place that God has designed for that part of his creation to live. Whether it's people and animals on land, birds in the sky, fish in the sea, or even stars, moons, and planets hanging on nothing in the cold void of space. There are differences. All flesh is not the same flesh. There are differences in earthly creatures that suit the environment that God placed them in. There's also differences in heavenly bodies that God has built into them as he has seen fit. God designed the sun, for example, to govern the day and to be the object in the sky that shines most brilliantly from our perspective. He designed the moon to govern the night and to give off a lesser reflective light. He designed the stars and the planets to occupy certain positions in the night sky at different distances with differing luminosity and with different colors marking the passage of time and seasons. At certain times of the year, you can see certain constellations and at other times of the year, others. God is incredibly inventive. Just to give you a taste of the inventiveness of God, I'll give you one example from the animal world. And there's countless examples that we could look at. But I thought, when we got to this, I thought of geckos. Geckos, as you probably know, are lizards. And they have long fascinated scientists because of their ability to do what? What can a gecko do that you can't do? Any ideas? That's a chameleon. (laughs) Good try, though. Geckos, they can climb up walls. They can hang upside down from a ceiling. Even if it's glass that you can't get any hold on, a gecko can climb right up that. A gecko can hang off of glass upside down. And it was a mystery as to how they could do that. But not too long ago, it was found out how they do that. The reason a gecko is able to do that is because of tiny hairs that protrude from folds on their feet. And each of those tiny hairs further branches off into even smaller hairs. So there's an incredible amount of surface area on the foot. And when the gecko places his foot on the surface that he's climbing up, even if it's glass, those teeny tiny hairs cover so much area and can get so close to the molecules of the surface they're climbing that they can take advantage of a special attractive force that takes place between molecules over very short distances called the van der Waals force. And that is what keeps them on the wall. In other words, geckos are able to experience an electromagnetic attraction between their feet and the surface they're climbing. That's pretty cool. And God did that. God gave that adaptation to the gecko. An assumption that may have lurked behind the skeptic's question of with what kind of body do the dead come when they are raised is the idea that what is earthly cannot inhabit what is heavenly. What's the sense in resurrecting an earthly body if an earthly body cannot live with God in heaven? Later on in this chapter, when we get to verse 50, we'll see Paul affirm that. That's a legitimate point. He says in verse 50 that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But in these verses, with Paul describing how God has created 
different things to inhabit different places. He's showing that God is perfectly capable of designing his creation to live wherever he wants it to live. So when the dead are raised and God transforms our earthly body, it is not at all a stretch to say that God will fit our resurrection body in such a way that it will be able to inhabit heavenly places. If God can design a gecko to electromagnetically hang upside down on glass by hairs on his feet, don't you think he can give the resurrected body of a believer the ability to dwell in his presence forever and ever? He's God. Of course he can. So those are the two illustrations that Paul has given us. And in verses 42 to 49, Paul seeks to apply these illustrations to the question at hand, the resurrection of the dead. These two illustrations Paul used to show two principles that will be at work in the resurrection. With the seed illustration, he showed that God brings about transformation in the resurrection body. By the creation example, talking about how all of these uh, forms of God's creation are different from one another, he stated a second principle that there will be an adaptation given to the resurrected body when God raises the dead. And it is these principles that Paul now applies to the question of the resurrection of the dead. Verses 42 to 44, we see transformation and adaptation occur at the resurrection. Look at verses 42 to 44. Paul says, so also, he's talked about the seed and the different forms of creation, and he says, likewise, or so also is the resurrection of the dead. It, the body, is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. He's particularly drawing on that illustration of a seed and the transformation the seed undergoes when it sprouts from the ground. As you see transformation in the seed, you will see transformation in the resurrection of the dead. As a pastor, I get a front row seat to a lot of funerals. And funerals, whether you're the one who has lost a loved one or whether you're the one who's just going to support a friend who has lost a loved one, or whether you're the one who's actually leading the service, funerals are painful experiences. And part of why they're painful is because you are coming face to face with the realities of what Paul calls the sowing of the body in these verses. Our earthly bodies, when they are dead and buried, reveal what kind of bodies they are and the shortcomings of those bodies. It reveals that they are bodies that are perishable, that is corruptible, decaying, subject to being broken down. I just had a birthday, and even at the comparatively young age of 36, I am experiencing the breakdown of my body. I get injured easier than I used to, and it takes me longer to heal than it used to. My body is slowly dying. It's just a reality. 
Verse 43, our bodies are sown in dishonor. The breakdown that leads to death is a dishonor. There's nothing glorious about it. Not when you compare it to what God's original design for mankind was. Our bodies are also weak, he says. They are sown in weakness. My wife and I, we've been watching a show where this man, who is an actor, is learning new techniques to try to add years to his life and to improve his quality of living as he gets older. And he's putting himself through a lot of effort just to try and bump the digits on his tombstone up a few numbers. He's fit as can be, and he plays a superhero on the movie screens, but he is weak. He is weak. He is incapable of keeping himself alive. Though we as mankind are the crown of God's creation, created in his image, our bodies, verse 44, are natural bodies. Natural bodies. They're subject to the same decay that we see taking place in the lowly animals of nature all around us. When you're driving down the road and you see a dead deer off on the side of the road, the body of that deer is the same kind of body you have. And so when you drive by that dead animal, that is a reminder that you are susceptible to the same kind of decay that that dead deer on the side of the road is. Your body is a natural body. But at the resurrection, all of that changes. It all changes. And it is that transformation that makes a funeral not only a painful time, but a hopeful and joyous time if we are burying a believer in Jesus Christ. We know that the dishonor that believer's body is experiencing will not be the last word for that believer's body. The day is coming when that body that we're putting into the ground will be resurrected and it will be transformed. And when that believer's body comes up out of the grave, it will be imperishable, not subject to decay or breakdown. And that resurrected body will have a glory about it that the body that went into the ground didn't have. I want you to listen to how the prophet Daniel describes that glory of the resurrected body. Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. He says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These, talking of believers, these to everlasting life, but the others, unbelievers, to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Verse 3, those, speaking of believers, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Your resurrected body, if you're a believer, will be a glorious body. What we are now is nowhere close to what we will be. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, the end of verse 43 says that our bodies will be raised in power. Back to that show that my wife and I are watching. Unlike that man, our resurrected bodies 
with, with us having those bodies, we will not need to learn de-stressing techniques to lower our heart rates so we don't get a heart attack. We will not need to take ice baths or sit in saunas to try and stimulate our immune systems and cleanse our bodies. We won't need to exercise three times a week to keep our bodies fit. We won't need to do mental exercises to try and ward off the ravages of dementia and Alzheimer's. We won't need to do any of that because our bodies will be powerful and death and decay will not threaten us. Now why will this be the case? Why will our resurrected bodies be imperishable, glorious, and powerful when they're raised from the dead? Well, it's because, as Paul says in verse 44, it's sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. The reason why our bodies will be transformed is because our resurrected body will no longer be a natural body, like that squirrel you flattened with your car tire on the way here. You won't have that kind of body when you're resurrected from the grave. Now, what does it mean that you'll have a spiritual body? Does that mean you'll be like a ghost floating around, and when you try to go and hug someone, you'll just kind of pass through one another? No, that's not what Paul means when he says a spiritual body. Think about Jesus Christ. What kind of body did he have when he was risen from the dead? Luke 24, verse 39, Jesus said, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Your resurrected body will be like Christ's body. It will be an actual material body consisting of flesh and bone that you can see and touch. When you hug someone, you'll feel them because they're real. They have a real body. When Paul says that we will have a spiritual body, he means a body that is sustained by the Spirit of God. To see this more clearly, let's go back to Romans chapter 8. We read it for our call to worship. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 9. Paul says, However, you, speaking to the believer, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. As believers, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, and we've been hearing about that in 1 Corinthians 15, our bodies are destined for death at the end of this earthly life. They decay and they're not free from the lusts of sin that plagues us this side of heaven. The body is dead in that sense. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. When you came to Christ, God made you alive on the inside. Your spirit was dead in sin, but when you came to Christ, he made your spirit alive. Verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also 
give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So not only is the Holy Spirit going to make us alive in the inside, which he's already done if we're trusting in Christ, but on the resurrection day, the same Holy Spirit will make our bodies alive so that we can live forever with the Lord. That is what Paul means when he says our bodies will be raised a spiritual body. It will be a body that is sustained and invigorated forever by the eternal Spirit of God, just like the risen body of Jesus Christ. At the end of verse 44, back in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Paul seems to be saying here that if the body we have now is a natural body, that is a body that is perishable and dishonored and weak, if that's the kind of body we have now and yet God is planning for us to live forever and ever with him as his people, that means what? I have to, there's got to be another kind of body that God's going to give me in order for his plan to come to fruition. If this is who I am now and yet God expects me as his uh, blood-bought child to live with him forever, then he is going to give me a different kind of body at the resurrection, a spiritual body. And how does God pull that off? How does God pull that off? He does it through Jesus Christ. This brings us to the last section of this passage, verses 45 through 49. Transformation, the transformation and the adaptation of our body will occur through Christ. Will occur through Christ. Look at verse 45. Paul writes, So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Here Paul is highlighting the glorious difference between Adam and Jesus. And he's going to show us from Scripture why it is that as Adam's people, our bodies are weak, and why as Christ's people, our bodies will be transformed. Paul, speaking of the first man, Adam, he quotes from Genesis 2, verse 7. Turn to Genesis 2. Paul says, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. He quotes that from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. That verse says, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And this is what Paul quotes, Man became a living soul or a living being. The phrase living being or living soul in Hebrew is nefesh hayah. Soul is nefesh. Hayah is the verb for living. Adam became a living being, a living soul. Paul, in quoting from this passage in verse 45, when he says, Adam became a living soul. The Greek word for that, that word soul is suke. We get our, our uh, term psychologist or psychiatrist having to do with the mind, what's going on inside of you. Suke. That's where that word comes from. 
But that Greek word suke for soul and that Hebrew word nephesh for soul, they have a similar range of meaning. It doesn't always mean the same thing every time you read it. The context determines the shades of meaning that, that those words carry. One way those words are used is kind of how we typically use the word, describing the immaterial part of us that is the seat of our will and emotions. And it's something that sets us apart from animals. Our soul, in that sense, sets us apart from animals. But there's another way that that word for soul in the Greek and in the Hebrew can be used. And that is in describing that which makes our physical bodies alive. That is the life or the breath that is inside of us. The thing inside of us that animates us, that makes us move and breathe and, and do other sorts of things. When the word is used in that second sense, that is actually something we share in common with animals. And it is that second sense that is being used in Genesis and in Paul's quotation of Genesis. The phrase living soul or living being in chapter 2, verse 7, it's exactly the same phrase used to describe animals in chapter 1. Turn back to Genesis chapter 1. Again, that, that Hebrew phrase, living being, is nefesh hayah, chapter 1, verse 20. And I know this is technical, but hang with me. There's a point to this. Verse 20, then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures or living beings, nefesh hayah. Same thing that was used to describe Adam in chapter 2. Verse 24, then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures, nefesh hayah, after their kind. Comparing those passages talking about man and talking about animals, that shows us that man and animals have bodies that are living and animated and breathe and move around. They have a, a being, a life in that second sense of that soul word in common with each other. It's what sets them apart from rocks and trees. They are living beings in that sense whereas rocks and trees are not. They don't breathe, they don't move around. People and animals do. And the life that people and animals have within them is a life that has been received by their creator. God gave them that life force that causes them to breathe and move around. So in 1 Corinthians 15:45, when Paul quotes Genesis 2:7, and he says that the first man, Adam, became a living soul or a living being, he's basically saying that Adam was created with a natural body, a body that was filled with life like the bodies of animals are filled with life. And this is really clear in the Greek language because the word for natural that we saw in verse 44 is the word sukakon. And the word for soul in verse 45 when Paul said Adam became a living soul is the word suke. They share the same root. Natural and soul share the same root. So when Paul says that Adam became a living soul or a living suke, he's saying that Adam had a natural body, a sukakon. And again, I'm not saying that 
animals and men are the same. We're not. We are created in the image of God. Animals are not. We have a, a soul in that we can think and, and reflect who God is, while animals cannot. But in that second sense of soul, just having something within us that enables us to breathe and move around, on that level we do share commonality with animals. What's the point? The point is that like the animals received life when God created them, so Adam received life when God created him. And it is a life that can be taken away from mankind in death, just as it's taken away from animals, like that dead deer you saw on the side of the road. That is why God is God and man is not. God gives life. Adam could only receive it. Adam could only receive it. But here's where the contrast comes in. So if you're sleeping, get back awake now. Verse 45 goes on to say this about Jesus Christ. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Adam was a man with a natural body like you and I, a man whose body was given life by God and a man whose life could be taken away from him. But the last Adam, Jesus, became a man who, instead of receiving life, he's a man who gives life. At his resurrection, Jesus became the first man with a spiritual body, a body whose life can never be taken away. And as the last Adam, as the life-giving spirit, Jesus is able to give that same kind of body to his people, a body whose life can never be taken away from it. You see, it's because Jesus is our representative that we look forward to a glorious resurrection in which we will be given a spiritual body, a body that will never die because we are connected to the one who can give life itself, Jesus Christ. Do you see the difference there between Adam, who could only receive life, and Jesus, who alone can give life to his people? We need to move through verses 46 to 49 pretty quickly here. Verse 46, Paul says, However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. There's an order to everything God does. We saw a few weeks ago there was an order to the resurrection But there's also an order into how history has played out. The natural man, Adam, came first. The second man, Jesus, came later. Adam came first, plunging mankind into sin and death. Jesus Christ came second, redeeming mankind and giving him life. We are born in Adam, born in sin and headed for death. But when we are born again in Christ and place our faith in Christ... We are forgiven of our sins and we are headed for eternal life. Verses 47 to 49, Paul says, The first man, Adam, is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, We will also bear the image of the heavenly. Adam, the first man being created from the dust of the ground, is called earthy 
by Paul. That just means made of dust. Jesus, on the other hand, the second man, being clothed with an incorruptible body when he was raised from the dead, he's described by Paul as heavenly. You and I being descended from Adam and having been represented represented by him in the Garden of Eden, we being earthly like him have had to bear his image, which involves experiencing all of the weakness of a natural body, perishing, being dishonored in our death, being weak. But if we turn from our sins and we place our faith in Jesus Christ, who paid for the sins of his people and rose from the dead, we become a part of his people. He becomes our representative. And being represented by him, the heavenly one, as he is, so also will we be. He will raise us from the dead and give us a body like his so that we will be able to serve him and fellowship with him and worship him forever and ever. We will bear his image in our resurrected body and we will become all that God has designed for us to be to his everlasting glory and praise. Let's pray.